VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Wednesday, September 17th, and you're listening to a special Wednesday edition of Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash podcast. And you could subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. We have a new sponsor this week, Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code M-I-N-D-S at checkout. Again, that's M-I-N-D-S if you can read. That's Minds. A better web starts with your website. Today's episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses, who bring the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. For limited time only, they are offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of its courses, Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Professor Mark Leary. To find out more, go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. So we said this was a special episode of Inquiring Minds. Let me just tell you why. Our reporter, our Climate Desk reporter, Tim McDonald, is in New York City, and he is there on the occasion of the People's Climate March. And this week, also in New York, was none other than former Vice President Al Gore. He was there because his organization, the Climate Reality Project, was filming a 24 Hours of Reality project in Brooklyn, and Tim actually caught up that's right. Caught up with Al Gore, and we are going to have that interview on the show today. So that's why we're running the show early. We didn't want to wait. We didn't want to hold it. So that's going to be our show today. Stand by for that. Before we air it, we're going to talk a little bit about just one story of science in the news. Yeah, this is, uh, came to my attention through a Slate article written by Kaylin O'Connor called Life is Random. And it's the idea that the whole nature and nurture debate is kind of specious. We know that. We understand that genes don't act in a vacuum, uh, that they, they very much depend on the environment to be expressed. And so epigenetics in the last decade or even more has become really the, the, the true way of thinking about the interaction between genes and environment, or at least one big part of it. But 
Now there's a third factor that people are studying that I think is really interesting and one that can actually explain a lot of the sort of things that we see that are surprising when we think about genetics. For example, why aren't identical twins really truly identical? And people argue, well, there's slight environmental changes even in the womb in terms of their positioning, etc. But there's actually quite a bit more to the story. And so the notion here is that noise or sort of randomness is also something that can affect the way that genes get expressed and that it's actually a fundamental part of biology that we haven't really studied very carefully before. So let me give you an example. When you have uh, a cell that's in an embryo and it needs to differentiate and become, you know, either a liver cell or an eye cell or a skin cell, you know, how does that actually happen? And that that is a, a really important thing for us to learn, of course, if we're ever going to use stem cells uh, or any other cells and, and turn them into the cells that we need if we're going to um, try to help our bodies regenerate organs and other parts that are not working anymore. Um, so the idea here is that, yes, there are some drivers of, you know, what one cell is going to become, say, for example, the exact environment that that cell is in, uh, but that there's also a kind of noise. So the example in the Slate article is to consider kinds of cells, different kinds of cells within the eyes of a fruit fly. So the different parts of a fruit fly actually have different colors, and this helps the fly see. And so in each developing fly eye cell, there's a gene called spineless, and it's randomly activated at different levels. So this can determine what color that particular part of the eye develops. And because this is largely random, then the overall organism gets the right variety and proportions of different kinds of cells. We talked earlier uh, this year on the show about how our understanding of randomness is actually not very good. We tend to think that um, randomness means that you have a particular alteration, especially in small numbers. Um, but luckily, nature is much better at being random. And this randomness actually helps us evolve and survive in the future. Because the more variability there is in a population, the more likely it is that some individuals will have the right genetic makeup that will help them survive a great environmental disaster. See how I did that, Chris? Mm-hmm. Well, look, I, I, I think this point about randomness uh, makes total sense. Uh, so just just to go back to one of my hobby horses, anyone who thought that nature and nurture were somehow opposed to one another or you could, you know, you have to explain things using only one rather than the other was just did not understanding biology very well. Uh, and and I, I think throwing randomness into the mix just explains things further. What I actually didn't like about the slate piece is that after explaining just how complicated it is, the author uh, then sort of said, and then there are all these genetic determinists out there who don't understand anything. And I'm just going to quote, genetic determinism is the view that our genes make us who we are. Popular articles abound describing genes for daredevilishness, creativity, empathy, even being a Republican. So look, I mean, nobody thinks that that genes deterministically cause those traits or behaviors. These are studies that show that genetics contribute to the behaviors, and there's many studies, or the traits. There's many studies like that. So I just found it weird that, on the one hand, this article is very sophisticated and explains just how complicated it is, and then says, oh, and then there's all these people who don't understand this, but in fact, they do. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the major 
uh, mistakes that people make is thinking that when people say, well, there's a genetic basis for something like being a Republican or even musical ability that was in the news for a while too this summer, that that means that there is a single gene that under underscores this very complicated behavior. And of course, that's not what people mean. Um, what they mean is that there is a certain genetic signature or pattern that we see that makes people more likely to behave in one way or another. And that is it, that is very interesting. Now, of course, you know, we, we still understand that environment can have an effect and, uh, you know, even even at the level of gene expression, you know, forget about, you know, all the other shaping that environment can do in terms of our behavior. Um, even at the level of gene expression, of course, environment has an effect. Um, you know, your diet is going to is going to dictate what kinds of, uh, you know, nutrients you have in your bloodstream, which is which are the building blocks of how cells create proteins a lot of the time. So, you know, that that's that's an important thing to remember. Um, but I, I do think that it's it's really important now for us to start to study, you know, what even when you do have identical genes, you know, what is it that causes organisms to develop in different ways? Uh, because ultimately, I think, and I, I hope that that maybe one of the biggest things that we can learn is how to treat cancer. Because of course, cancer actually uses the built in randomness <laughs> uh, in order to flourish. That's one of the things that makes it so difficult to treat. And in fact, um, even in the article, they mentioned that some some types of cancer can get around chemotherapy because of the noise that's built into the system. Hmm. I didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. And so the upside is, of course, that because there's random noise in our population, that hopefully that has led to some individuals being able to survive what is probably an impending environmental disaster. So to learn more about that, we're going to step to our interview with Al Gore. But first, let's take a short break. Today's episode is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. What's so great about Squarespace? It's simple, super easy, but it also has a lot of different beautiful design options. So if you've ever wanted to make a website but felt overwhelmed with how it all works, Squarespace is perfect for you. You can literally drag and drop content onto your new website. Plus, there's 24-7 chat and email support and every site comes with an online store. Plans start at only $8 a month, and they include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So for a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout. That's M-I-N-D-S. Show your support for Inquiring Minds and start building your website today. Today's episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's top professors to your fingertips. They have over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more. And The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace um, without the pressure of homework or exams or anything like that. So for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of these courses, Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Professor Mark Leary. And I guarantee you, he will explain nature and nurture to you and maybe even randomness. So go to greatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Fashion Week has just wrapped up here in New York City, and now there's a different kind of activity brewing on the streets that might be less sexy, but is, I'd argue, even more important, and that's climate change. On Sunday, what's likely to be the biggest climate rally in history, 100,000 people expected to attend, will march through Midtown Manhattan. 
Then on Tuesday at the United Nations building, President Obama will be joined by over 100 other world leaders, as well as CEOs, mayors, and environmentalists for the biggest summit on climate in the last five years. It's the first in a series of meetings to hammer out a major new climate treaty to replace the Kyoto Protocol. All the big questions will be on the table. How much polluters like the U.S. and China will be willing to cut their carbon emissions, the role of alternative energy sources, how to prepare for the impacts that are already here or on their way. And of course, one of the most prominent voices in that debate, as it has been for many years now, will be that of former Vice President Al Gore, who is here in New York for Climate Week and who was kind enough to speak with us for a few moments this evening. Mr. Gore, thank you so much for joining us here on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for coming over. Next week, the eyes of many world leaders are going to be on the U.S. looking at what kind of actions President Obama and his team are willing to make. Um, so let, let's start with a moment of self-reflection here. How would you assess uh, the president's job so far in his term um, dealing with this issue? Has he gone far enough to address climate change? Well, you won't be surprised that uh, it's not far enough for me, but uh, I really admire what the president has done. In his first term, uh, I expressed some considerable concern uh, about what I thought he was failing to do. But he began even his first term with the green stimulus, and he attempted to pass the cap-and-trade legislation and did, in fact, succeed in getting it passed in the House of Representatives. But then the U.S. Senate, where so many good ideas go to die now, uh, uh, worked its way. Uh, And then for the balance of his first term, um, there was uh, not... Uh, the kind of energy and activity that I felt was appropriate. But on election night, uh, when he won his second term, he made a very inspiring statement. In his uh, first, in his second inaugural address, he went further. In his State of the Union address uh, at the beginning of his second term, and then most uh, memorably last June, uh, he gave the best president, uh, the best speech on climate that any president has ever given. And uh, given the uh, Republican House of Representatives and the logjam in Congress generally, he decided to go around them perfectly legally by instructing his EPA to put out uh, these important historic regulations uh, requiring a reduction in CO2 emissions uh, from power plants. Uh, This combined with his success in raising automobile efficiency standards and a number of other steps he's taken, I I think demonstrate that he he has shifted. I think he sees this as a legacy issue. I think he wants to make real progress. He continues to do some things that cause me uh, concern, the below-market leasing of coal and oil and gas reserves and Uh, the so-called all-of-the-above strategy, which is the prevailing code for let's keep burning fossil fuels. But it's not fair to just take those things out of context without looking at the totality uh, of his policies. And the totality of what he's doing now in his second term is really historic. And I I think that he is definitely committed to further action uh, and I think he's committed to doing all that he can to get an agreement in Paris next December. Since we are coming up now to a, a, the beginning of a lengthy round of international negotiations, um, 
What about the role of our top diplomats on this issue, Secretary of State John Kerry and also his predecessor Hillary Clinton? How would you assess the roles that that they've done on addressing climate change? Well, I think it's hard to compare them because uh, even though they served the same man as president, the two terms in which they served were, as I just described, very different. I really admire what Secretary John Kerry has been doing. I worked with John Kerry on the climate issue when he and I were both United States senators. Uh, I chaired the delegation to the Earth Summit uh, in Rio from the U.S. Senate. John was an integral part uh, of that delegation. He has been a leader on this issue for a long, long time. Um, And his wife, Teresa Hines Kerry, uh, is also a leader on the issue. And he has uh, managed to keep the climate issue front and center during his travels and during his meetings with uh, his counterparts around the world, and I I give him a lot of credit. What about Hillary Clinton on this issue? Well, again, she served uh, during the first term of President Obama when uh, uh, his his prioritization of the issue was somewhat different. The other huge player, of course, in the negotiations that are going to start to take place next week is China. I think we're all looking forward a lot to what's going to come out of of their contributions to the discussion. Uh, Do you think that China takes climate policy more seriously than the U.S.? Well, I I don't know that I would uh, say that because, um, not to use a cliche, but there is good news and bad news. Uh, The good news is quite powerful. They have invested far more than any other nation in the development of renewable energy and efficiency technologies and uh, fast trains and smart grids. And uh, they have succeeded in uh, reducing their CO2 intensity. But, um, and they've now, they have now begun a pilot cap and trade program in five cities and two provinces. And They've indicated it will be the model for a nationwide cap-and-trade program. And we may, yet, we may well see some significant commitments from China at the United Nations next Tuesday. But to put this in perspective, they're still building uh, dirty coal plants. Uh, and even though their emissions level only surpassed that of the U.S. a few years ago, their emissions are now more than 160% of U.S. uh, emissions. So that's uh, part of the bad news. I think the new president of China, Xi Jinping, definitely is committed to progress on climate. Uh, If for no other reason, the consequences of air pollution from burning so much coal are such that it's creating unrest uh, in China and it uh, causes concern about the stability of the party's rule. So I think for many reasons he definitely wants to make progress. But in the regions, some regional leaders are very close to large carbon polluters and there's an ancient Chinese saying you may have heard, the the mountain is high and the emperor is far away. Well, it turns out in the age of digital communications, uh, the emperor or the president of China is not that far away, and he's doing uh, a little bit uh, a better job of making the regions uh, toe the line on the new initiative. So good news, bad news, I'm optimistic, and I think we'll know more on Tuesday. 
You mentioned optimism. You also mentioned earlier um, looking forward to the kind of accord that's going to come out of Paris. Uh, how optimistic are you that, that the kind of thing we'll see in Paris will uh, be enough to make a real difference in the climate issue? We've seen these um, UN climate conferences before. The, the last sort of really seminal one in Copenhagen was, I think, most people would agree was not as successful as it should have, have been or could have been. Do you expect more to come out of Paris or, or how optimistic are you that, that that will be a great success? Well, Copenhagen set the bar pretty low. <laughs> I, I'm sure Paris will clear that easily. But I'm hopeful that Paris will do much more besides. Um, I went to, to the organizing conference in Abu Dhabi earlier this year, aimed at this summit and aimed at the Paris conference. And I have found a new mood all around the world. The climate-related extreme weather events that are 100 times more common now than 30 years ago have really changed minds around the world. Uh, To use an old poker metaphor, people are looking at their whole cards and they're realizing that, yes, this is for real. We have to do something about it. And another thing that's different now is that the solutions are far more affordable. In fact, the latest study just out yesterday shows we may actually be able to save money by uh, making this rapid switch to renewable energy. I I think that Mother Nature's voice has been very persuasive, and I think the technology revolution in renewables has convinced people that the path forward is open, profitable, better for us, Uh, And and so I do think it's likely to be different. One of the greatest American poets of the 20th century, Wallace Stevens, once wrote a a line that after the last no comes a yes. And on that yes, the future world depends. We've had a lot of no's in these international negotiations, but that's been true of every great social movement. And eventually there comes a yes. Yes. I believe it may very well come at Paris in December of 2015. I'd like to return to the U.S. Um, kind of internally for a moment. Earlier, you you did mention the this all of the above energy approach, and of course, you know the expansion of uh, natural gas drilling, fracking has been kind of a seminal part of Obama's energy legacy. Um, some people uh, think see this as kind of a way to a clean energy future. Other people are concerned that it could, in fact, turn out to be even worse for the climate than coal. Uh, wh- where do you fall on this issue? I mean, do, do you see natural gas as a solution here, or what, what's your take? Well, it depends on how it's done. I, I'm against it uh, until and unless they demonstrate the ability to stop the methane leaks at every stage of the process, particularly during fracking, because, as you know, the global warming uh, effect of methane molecules is 82 times as powerful as CO2 over a 20-year period. And so it doesn't take much leakage to completely wipe out the climate benefit of using natural gas as a temporary short-term bridge strategy. If they can control the methane releases genuinely, not just rhetorically, and if they have adequate regulations in place, to protect the groundwater supplies and the disposal of waste and the other consequences from fracking, then perhaps it could serve as a very short-term bridge to substitute for much dirtier coal as the renewable revolution gains scale and takes over from gas. But what we're seeing with the rapid reduction in the price of electricity from solar and from wind 
is a threat to the viability of natural gas as a source of energy in the marketplace. Because now, uh, solar photovoltaics in particular are becoming so cost-effective in so many places and within a few short years in almost every place that we're going to see a conversion to solar and wind and advanced, affordable, efficient battery storage and energy storage technologies and, above all, massive new investments in efficiency improvements which reduce the demand for energy. That's a, that's a great point about the economics of that, of course, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out. Just one more follow-up to that question. Are you optimistic that the, the type of regulation on methane emissions specifically that you've described, is that something you see as being forthcoming from the federal government anytime soon? I think there's an excellent chance that the Obama administration will take bold steps in, in that area. They've indicated that, um, and I'd be surprised if they don't. I wanted to ask, I guess, about the continuing on the thread of the the issue of political support. Um, you know, it seems like the the tide is turning in favor of climate gaining traction as an issue. Um, you know, what, what do you see as kind of tipping this the balance back in favor of making this a truly a bipartisan issue? Where, what, where where do you see that trend moving as far as the support for that? And and I guess as a kind of secondary question to that. Are there, is there anyone in the Republican Party who you really see as a leader on this issue right now? Former Congressman Bob Inglis has been doing a good job in trying to recruit more Republicans. Um, uh, former Secretary of Treasury Hank Paulson has made some powerful statements and has written uh, beautifully about it. Uh, former Secretary of State George uh, Shultz uh, similarly has been a leader um, among Republicans. Uh, and I know there are others, but unfortunately the list is a very short one at the top levels, simply because uh, the Tea Party Republicans, some of them encouraged and even financed, not all, but some of them encouraged and financed by entities like the Koch brothers and uh, other fossil fuel carbon polluters, have uh, really inspired fear among Republicans that if they don't do what uh, the polluters want uh, on climate, they'll face primary challenges from people who get all the money they need from the large polluters. And that has driven this uh, tribal division in American politics. I use the word tribal perhaps inappropriately. What I mean is the kind of behavior that uh, we associate with tribalism. You belong to a group and the group does this and you just are going to do what the group wants no matter what. That's troubling because that's not the way our democracy is supposed to work. Uh, and it's not the way it once did. The climate used to be a completely bipartisan issue. The environment generally did. Uh, I hope we can find a way to get back to that. What, what do you think it will take to get back to, to that again? Well, I've seen some signs of hope um, that some in the Tea Party movement itself uh, are removing uh, the blinkers placed upon them by the Koch brothers and the oil and gas and coal polluters. Uh, for example, when uh, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, this cat's paw for uh, the carbon polluters, uh, tried to pass a state law in Georgia to tax people with solar panels, uh, the Atlanta Tea Party joined with the Sierra Club in opposing it. And they formed a new group called the Green Tea Party. 
and they succeeded in defeating that legislation. And actually, in quite a large number of states with Republican-controlled legislatures, there has been resistance to uh, the polluters' agenda. We're not there yet, uh, and the partisanship is still extreme. But I'm encouraged that there are signs of hope. Well, clearly, Mr. Gore, you're somebody who has been at the center of of this conversation for some years now. And I I wonder, as we're seeing the tide shift in the way that it is, what's your take on the the proper, uh, I guess, framing for the conversation as we move forward on the part of, you know, not just politicians, but including uh, journalists, um, you know, activists, I guess the, the community at large, I mean, how should we be talking about this? Is, 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 are we in a position now where we need to approach this with kind of cautious optimism? Is it time for the sort of sky is falling pessimism? Or how do we kind of strike a balance between those? And- well, we're at a stage now where regrettably some uh, serious damage has been done to the Earth's ecological systems. And some of it, uh, regrettably, irreversible, like the pending loss of the West of uh, the West Antarctic ice sheet. And given those and other similar facts, I think it's especially important now uh, to guard against uh, despair, which can be paralyzing. We have much work to do. This cause uh, is still very much alive. We will win this. There will be damage, uh, unfortunately. But we can still prevent the catastrophic damage that the scientists tell us would follow continued unrestrained spewing of global warming pollution into the atmosphere. So we need to emphasize uh, the positive new developments that do now give us the realistic chance to solve this crisis. We can do it. Uh, And as more people look at the fact that it's really, when you boil it down, a choice between right and wrong, it really is. And in that sense, it is part of a great tradition of uh, issues that included the the winning of the struggle for abolition of slavery, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, women's uh, suffrage and women's equality, uh, equality and dignity and justice for the GLBT uh, community, the anti-apartheid effort, uh, and the list goes on. Those are all issues that ultimately became defined within a framework of what's right and what's wrong. And when that's the choice, the outcome is foreordained because of who we are uh, as human beings. And I think we're very close to achieving the definition of this issue within that framework. Mr. Gore, thank you so very much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. My pleasure. Thank you. So what's really struck me about this interview is that Al Gore has seen, if anyone has seen, all of the many reasons to be pessimistic about people getting anything done about climate change, especially by convening large international meetings of dignitaries and diplomats who, you know, reach lowest common denominator, unfortunately, too often solutions. So it is striking and heartening to find him saying that finally he feels optimistic that something is going to happen. You know, when he says that it's because of extreme weather that people are now looking at their whole cards, their whole deck of cards, they're actually seeing what's at stake. And because, you know, as he emphasizes, clean energy is getting more and more affordable. You know, I think it's it's nice to hear this really optimistic message from him. 
Yeah, I just hope it's not already too late. You know, as a lot well, of people say. Well, it is too late for Antarctica, right? <laughs> I mean, it yeah. says that too. So. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I also, you know, I still, I still want to hear more about exactly what us as individuals, what we should be doing, because sometimes I feel frustrated just waiting for, you know, the politicians to get their stuff together. And I know it's not enough to make little small changes in the way that I live my life. So it would be kind no, of nice. No to- more airplanes, no more cars. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I wish there was kind of a a really good set of tools that we could use as individuals to really make a difference. Well, uh, you know, I think that, and and I'm being facetious, um, this is a huge problem because a lot of the things you can do as an individual just do not, do not add up to, you know, do not scale up uh, to the size and the magnitude of the problem. Uh, so it's, it's it's hard to even find any one company <laughs> that contributes significantly to the problem, much less one individual. Uh, but I, I think that it's all about modeling solutions in your own life so that you they become infectious, so that other people see what you're doing and they and they think that's wonderful and they want to be like you. So I think that when people you know when they install solar on their roof, when they do these sort of things that not only help their lives but that actually show to others that they're taking action uh, to address you know, climate change through changing how they get energy or something like that. I think that that's, that's very, that can be very infectious. And so I think that that's kind of one of the things that people can do. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, there's just a sense of of a change in the way that people regard climate change and its importance in our lives. And, you know, of, uh, of course, I think what what you and I try to do, which is continue talking about this topic, even though for a lot of people, it's become a little bit like flogging a dead horse. But, you know, unfortunately, we need to keep talking about it if anything significant is actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And I want to give a shout out to Alexandra Merges, who turned me on to a blog post that looks at the science of cookie making. So I will be baking some cookies and trying to figure out which ones really are the best. And I'll get back to you on that. So you can send us (laughs) comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own cookie recipes or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. I want to remind you again, we have a new sponsor this week, Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial with no credit card required and 10% off your first purchase, just go to squarespace.com and enter offer code MINDS at checkout. That's MINDS, M-I-N-D-S. A better web starts with your site. Today's episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses, who bring the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of its courses, Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Professor Mark Leary. To find out more, go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. At Amica Insurance... We know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. 
For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.